We're here to be reminded that God walks with us through all things. And today we hear another story about such a truth. And it comes from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 34 through chapter 16, verse 13. This is the story about David's being anointed as the next king of Israel. Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord was sorry that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Saul did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come to me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited, him to the, invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointing is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. Neither had the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by and said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. There remains, and he said, are these all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. And the Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So if you have been with us the last few weeks and hearing these stories from 1 Samuel, it's obvious that things still are not getting any better for Israel. The lack of principle and spiritual leadership is still among them. And those like Saul continue to bring harm and discord. As it was with Eli and Samuel's own sons making things hard for Israel when they led, now Israel has discovered how truthful God had been when telling them that having your king as you want it, it's only going to bring you more heartache. Saul, this first king, has rejected God. He has enriched his life at the expense and the suffering of others. And once more, he's a poor strategist. He undermines spiritual leaders, dismissing God outright, and he's prone to fits of rage. And it is, it is, of course, a monarchy. And there will be no election, no choosing a new king, unless some drastic measures are taken. 
His rule will place, be in place for a long time. Now with David, that dramatic action will come. But at this point in the story, David is still this ruddy kid keeping sheep. He's the youngest of eight brothers. And today's story is that of David identified as this future king of Israel, but it's more than a history lesson. It's about a it's more than this transition towards a kingship and a monarchy. It's a story that permits us to grapple. To grapple with God and how God deals with our human condition. And to focus, the focus today is about what God values and looks for most in us. Yes, Israel continues to have troubles. Their leaders are not doing them any favors. But the truth is, God has been and continues to be head of the search committee. God still calls these folks to lead. And God continues to walk alongside Israel, searching and trying to bring about a better day. And even so, we, I am tempted to want to ask, God, what are you seeing in these folks? I mean, so far, few of God's choices have panned out very well. And here we go again. Who will this successor be to the corrupt and rather violent Saul? Will this next choice really make any difference? Nonetheless, God persists. And he asks Saul to go visit Jesse to anoint a successor. Who is Jesse? Well, Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. He lived in Bethlehem. He was a prominent figure in the town. But he's important because Isaiah submits to us that from Jesse, someone will arise and restore Israel. Isaiah writes that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall judge not by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. Oh, oh my, at this point, how much did Israel want this to be true? My goodness, how desperately had they needed someone just like this to lead them out of the darkness and the troubles of their day? Someone who would seek God's wisdom and counsel as Isaiah promises. So Samuel listens to God. He gets out his ram's horn, he fills it with oil for the anointing, and he goes to see Jesse. But for good reason, he is afraid. He knows that if Saul gets wind, even an inkling of what is planned here, that it is the end for Saul. Perhaps anyone associated with Samuel, rather. So Samuel could not make his way to Bethlehem announcing to the world, I've come to anoint the next king, one of Jesse's sons. So God listens to this concern, and God knows that Samuel is right. So they create a secret plan together. See, the Holy One reminds Samuel that you're not only a judge who anoints king, you're also a priest. You also offer sacrifices. Go and do that as your cover story. God was often subversive in this way, wasn't God? 
God was subversive with Moses and trying to get Pharaoh to freeze Israel. And, and God will even use Magi to help Jesus escape the violence of King Herod in this very place in Bethlehem many, many years later. And for the very same reasons. God often does this, right? God often uses the most unlikely of us to bring rescue. In this image of Samuel today, I rather find it humorous myself. I mean, God has called this aging priest to undermine Saul, someone with a whole army at his disposal, with nothing more than a, an, a ram's horn filled with oil, a heifer on a leash, and a subversive story. And when he arrives, we're told that the elders are afraid. And they question Saul, do you come peaceably? So I have to ask, what danger did an aging man with a heifer on a leash really bring to them? What was it about him that scared them? Whatever it was, Saul, Samuel calms their fears. And he tells them, I've come to offer sacrifice. It's a half-truth, of course. And they believe his story. And it seems as though this is a rather random visit. This is out of the blue. No one's expecting this. So Jesse tells his sons to come forward to be sanctified and be invited to the sacrifice. And Samuel must have assumed that it's going to be the very first one. This is the oldest one. His name is Eliab. He's probably tall and handsome. And, well, he's the first and the oldest of the sons. So surely this is the one. But Samuel hears a message. No, not this one. I look at the heart. I don't look at what is on the outside. Each son walks up. Samuel anticipates that maybe the next one, but one after another, after all seven have passed by, not one of them has he been called to anoint. What now? Everyone has passed by. This subversive plan to anoint a king has not been fulfilled, and there must have been an awkward silence because at this point, Samuel's going to have to risk offending Jesse. You see, Samuel would have had every reason to assume that everyone in the whole family would have been invited here. Surely he wouldn't have left anyone out. But this is a very important task. So he asked Jesse, hey, do you have a child you forgot about? <laughs> is there someone you haven't brought forth yet? Or maybe it's like that child who doesn't want to come to church every Sunday, and this Sunday, I just give up. Just, I'll let him stay in the fields for a while. But it turns out that this was a surprise visit, and it had caused Jesse some anxiety. Someone had to take care of the sheep. They couldn't be left alone. Maybe he kept this from Samuel because who wants to tell the priest that they're being inconvenient? I don't know. Finally, David is summoned. This is the one. So he anoints him, and this first step towards this long transition is fulfilled. Now, often this story is told as a lesson, a lesson about not judging people based on outward appearance, whether it be positive or negative. Don't think too much of folks and don't think too little of them. It's a good message. It's a valid and worthwhile sentiment, and it's inspired the title of my sermon today even. But this truth not judging folks based on what we see, it's way more complicated than that, isn't it? It's not easy. Can we ever really grasp fully what God sees? 
can we really ever see as God sees? Observing the divine is not an easy task. It's as hard as we may look. Sometimes it's, it's difficult. We often go our own way. We often make choices based on our presumptions and incomplete visions. And, well, we can grow slow in wanting to give ourselves up to God's lead. Because God leads us to do things, well, like take ram's horn with oil, leading a heifer on a leash to change the world. Even to face the biggest challenges of, lives, of our lives, sometimes we feel ill-equipped. We are given the power by Jesus Christ to change the world, but that means that we do so by overcoming hate with love. God gives us the wisdom through Christ to turn our cheek on those who want to be violent towards us. Jesus tells us that we must be willing not only to care for our friends, because that is easy, but to care for and love those who despise us. Our task is those called to change the world, to offer peace in the face of unrest is not easy. As the late John Lewis once said, fury spins itself pretty quickly when there's no fury facing it. It's interesting that David's beauty and magnetism will, will play a large role in his story. But there's far more to David. Throughout his life, David's heart will be shaped into something to celebrate and to model. Yet at this point, we know that there are a few major mistakes that he's going to make along the way. His, this shaping of his heart, it begins here as he, anoint, as he is anointed by David, becomes this king, however secretly it may be. But this new king of Israel, from this day forward, had the Spirit of God mightily upon him. And that Spirit of God transformed him, transitioned him to something different. A few years ago, I was at a bus stop, and I was um, sitting there by myself, and a man walks up to sit with me, and I heard him before I saw him. He was singing and whistling, and as he walked up, he was carrying a heavy-duty trash bag with some cuts in it that I could see inside, and I realized that he was carrying things like supplies and extra food or clothes, things that he was going to use that evening to sleep outside in the cool spring air. He was quick to strike up a conversation with me. And I soon realized that he did not allow for much silence in the conversation. And what I mean is that after every comment, he immediately started whistling and singing again. And while I replied nonetheless, I could tell he was listening to what I was saying intently, but it was quite awkward, quite awkward, a bit frustrating, and it was hard to engage him fully. But soon he came to learn I was the clergy type. And once he heard that, he, he lit up even more. He wanted to talk about Jesus and the church and the scriptures. He sang hymn refrains even louder and more, more uh, zealous than before as we talked. And I must confess to you, at this point I was thinking, okay, it takes about 45 minutes for a bus to come. This could be a while. But just about then, he says, do you, what do you think, or who do you think is the most important in the person in the Bible other than Jesus? I said, well, I'm not sure. With that hesitation, he says, King David. 
Do you know why? No, I said. He said, because he made a lot of bad mistakes in his life. He made a lot of messes. But he had the courage to let God make him a better person. He said, we all need to be like King David, don't we? We all need to have the right kind of heart that David has. I must confess, in that moment, I was not looking for him to offer such sage and wise advice to me. I was not looking at him any deeper than what I saw standing before me, all the things that I found a bit distracting. And I was reminded that assumptions and prejudices are powerful blinders. And they often keep us from seeing one another and even ourselves as we ought to and as God sees us. And I do believe this man was right. Now, I don't know if David is the second most important person in the Bible, but I do believe that when God looked at David's heart, God did not see a person without flaws. What God saw was a heart that was willing to be opened and changed. In her fictional book about David, Geraldine Brooks wrote that people loved David because they knew his flaws. Indeed, they loved him all the more because of his flaws and did not hide, because he did not hide his passionate, blemished nature. Maybe this is what God saw in David's heart. Maybe God saw the potential in a young man whose blemished nature and passions could be forged into something more, something more loving. And I do believe, church, that this is the most important witness the church has for the world today. The world needs desperately to know that we as people of Christ own our flaws. But people who are willing to open our hearts to God and one another to become by grace something more, something more loving. I've come to appreciate the work of Brene Brown over the years. And before we faced a full-on pandemic and the harsh realities of racism in our world as we are today, she wrote words I was drawn back to this week. In fact, these words feel truer today than when I read them years ago. She writes that the world feels high, lonesome, and heartbroken to me right now. We've sorted ourselves into factions based on politics and ideology. We've turned away from one another and toward blame and rage. We're lonely and tethered and sometimes scared. We live in a moment. We're coming together to solve our problems and to bring healing really is utmost important. But rather than coming together, we sometimes scream at each other from farther and farther away. But the part of her reading I really needed to hear this week was this. She said that spirituality is recognizing and celebrating that we are all inextricably connected to each other by a power greater than all of us. And that our connection to that power and one another is grounded deeply in love and compassion. As difficult as it might be, we need to see things as they are sometimes, within or without. And what if looking right at what is most difficult to see, the hardest to look like, what if that is the only way to bring about the change and the unity we so deeply long for? Seeing each other as God sees us is of utmost importance. And if that's true, 
What can God see today that we cannot see? I do think that the grace of this story is that we all live in plain sight of God. I know, that doesn't sound very comforting, does it? It sounds terrifying to me because that means that I am fully known by God, fully exposed before God in my insides and my outs, my thoughts, my past, my actions, my motives. Well, they're right there for God to see. That's not always so comforting. Yet, the grace is that if I can step into that truth, I might see what God sees. And if I can do that, I retain the ability to change and to be more and more who God has called me to be. This transition is a lifelong effort. That's the importance of open hearts, it seems. And to step into such a truth, it reminds us that we all, and we all will, sometimes fail in gigantic ways, sometimes in small ways. But it reminds me that without God's forgiveness and restoration in our lives, our future would be hopeless. But it's not. May we then open our hearts today. Wherever fear, our hatred, our indifference, our prejudice, our doubt, where they make a home in us, are between us, may the same God who looked upon the heart of David look upon our hearts today, in this moment, and in this time for which we live. And having looked upon our hearts, may God help us all transition and to become more loving, and more peaceful. One day, David would write another psalm. And in that psalm, he would write about oil being poured out upon Aaron. But I have to think that he remembered the day that oil was poured out upon his head. He wrote these words. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dews of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there, the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. So Lord, we open our hearts to you today. Do with our hearts as you see fit. Thanks be to God. Amen.